But man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So please give us the word. And let's once again welcome Dave up here. Well, what we want to do right now is focus on the second uh, aspect of what, we, what we're talking about this weekend, which is the essential attitudes. Uh, we got the command. We understand the theology. Now, uh, there is a fruit that flows out of that, and the fruit begins on the inside and flows outward from there. Listen, it'd be really easy for us just to start going, you know, I need to love better and start, you know, hey, brother, how can I pray for you? And do it for a while on our own power and things like that. What we really need to see change, though, transformation of, of the, the newborn life is from the inside out. So there are certain attitudes that we need to uh, really shore up in our heart that will help us to have a, more of a desire to love as Jesus loved us. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about. If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. What do your prayers look like when you pray for your brothers and sisters here at uh, LBCSJ? I mean, what, what, do, what do they look like? And do you pray for one another? And if so, what kinds of things are you praying for? What do you pray is kind of the question I'm asking. Are your prayers primarily related to uh, their comfort, their financial struggles, their job situations, their health? Uh, are your petitions centered primarily around a desire for their life, that their life would be without struggles, without hardship? Do you pray mostly for their ease, their best life now? Do you even pray for each other regularly, right? None of those things for, to pray about the temporal issues of life are wrong. By In fact, we're instructed to pray for those things, right? But while there is certainly nothing wrong with taking our cares to the Lord because he cares for us, Scripture dictates us to do that, I want us to learn a little something more from the Apostle Paul right here in Philippians uh, chapter 1 in particular. What does he, when he has the opportunity, what does he pray for? And what he prays for here in Philippians 1, 9 through 11 is he prays, and you can follow along with me, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more, in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He prays right off the bat for their love to abound. And again, this is not sentimental love. This is agape love. This is uh, not a love that's defined in terms of attraction, like so much of our kind of worldly love can be. Attraction is not necessary for agape love to operate. I mean, think about it. Did God love you because you were so great and attractive? Of course not, right? I mean, we were enemies. We were on the opposite side of the game here. He didn't love us because we were attractive. He this kind of love is like God's love. It meets the needs of the uh, less attractive, less likable, maybe, person, as well as the sweet little child that comes up to you with tender eyes. Do you only love those who are lovable? Can you love a grumpy person? 
Can, can you love a mean-spirited person in the right way? I mean, God loved you when you were unlovable. Agape love doesn't play favorites, okay? That's the first thing you want to really notice about agape love is it just doesn't play favorites. The second thing you notice about agape love would be that it involves a commitment of the will. And we've talked about that already. It's not uh, defined in terms of reciprocation. You know, most of the time we love because uh, we want to be loved or we want a response back from people. I do a lot of premarital counseling. And, you know, when you say, why do you love each other, you know, that kind of thing, usually it comes, well, they make me feel a certain way, or, you know, I, I like the way I am when I'm around them. It's all very kind of focused back upon self there. Agape love's different than that. It is, a, it is a, the commitment of the will. I counseled a, a lady one time, and she came in, and she says, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to divorce my husband. I was like, okay. And there's no biblical grounds, and we went through all that, and she uh she says, I can't help it. I fell in love. I fell in love. Well, that's not agape love. Agape love can help it. Agape love is a, a love of the will. It's a choice. Agape love makes the choice to love others, uh, even when perhaps they're not uh, particularly lovable. It also involves that sacrifice that we talked about. It. John 15, verse 13 says, that Greater love, that's the agape word again, has no one than this, that he laid out his life for his friends. Ephesians 4, 32 tells us what the sacrifice looks like. It's, you're to be kind to one another. I mean, it's hard to be kind to people sometimes, isn't it? Just to, I mean, right? Uh, it, it tells us we're to be tenderhearted. We're to be forgiving of one another. Sometimes people don't want to forgive. They like the power or they like, you don't know what they did to me. I'm not going to forgive them. Uh, we're to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. So when you don't feel like it's Valentine's Day, right, and you don't feel all warm and fuzzy, agape love still loves, even if it involves personal sacrifice, like Christ dying on the cross that we talked about last hour. The fourth thing about agape love that you want to kind of keep in mind is that uh, it shows care for others, whether they reciprocate and show care to you or not. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27 says, uh, Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. That's a staggering statement as well, isn't it? Uh, agape love is a love that gives with no strings attached. It's not an emotion, but a commitment of the will to seek the very best for the one who is the object of love. And this kind of love, this agape love that we're called to, is the greatest thing really that you can do in this life. I mean, if you think about 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about faith, it talks about hope, and it talks about love. And then at the end it says, now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is that? I mean, faith's pretty good, wouldn't you say? Well, kind of important. Hope? Oh, man, the Bible talks so much about hope. We need our hope, don't we? In a world that's uh, fighting against God, we need a we need to know that there is a, a judge and there's vengeance and there's a home that's future and he will make things right and all those kind of things. This world doesn't last forever. We're just passing through. We're aliens and strangers. Those are great truths. But you know what? Faith becomes sight. Hope gets realized and love endures. So we want to get in some good love practice this side of heaven the glory of God. And it's a great thing that we're called to here. And that's why Paul says, I, I'm praying that your love may abound 
still more and more. And the word abound there is like continually abounding more and more. He's building it up. Why? Oh, by the way, the basis of it, more in what? Real knowledge and all discernment. I want to be based on truth. And you see how the act of the will kind of love, the agape love needs that truth because you're not reacting to personal responses and things like that. You're loving because you are to love. So it's based on actual truth. I want you to bound in your love and more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that, here's the purpose, you may approve the things that are excellent. That could be translated so that you'll, uh, you'll approve the things that make a difference. It's that kind of idea. I love that, right? If your heart is set in the right place, kind of like we talked about last hour, your, your, your activities will follow suit and you will align yourselves with the things that make a difference for eternity's sake. Listen, if you are abounding in love still more and more, what does that do to your evangelism? I mean, do you want to share the gospel with people who need to hear it? Do you care? I mean, even Jesus. I mean, think about it. God, you know, issues of predestination, election, foreknowledge, and all those kind of things, right? I mean, he knows before the foundation of the earth who is and who isn't, all this kind of stuff. But Jesus sits on a hillside, looks over Jerusalem, realizing they're uh, not repenting, that they're rejecting, and he weeps. That's law. Do you weep for the lost? And say, are there lost people in the San Francisco area? Maybe a few, right? Just like L.A. Do you weep for that? that? Love will empower you. It's not, I need to share my faith because Pastor Mark said, you know, we should be sharing our faith. So I'm going to go out there because I just feel the pressure to do it. I want to check it off my list, you know, that kind of thing. I do it because I look around and there are people who are going to a real place called hell. I mean, what do you believe? Do you have a theology of hell? Do you know what? I mean, if you think about what hell is, who do you want to see go there? Your worst enemy you don't want to see go there, right? I mean, it's eternal death, just like in Christ we have eternal life. It never ends. Weeping, gnashing teeth, all that kind of stuff. Who do you want to see go through that, right? Don't you want to take the gospel to them? Now, God saves. You don't save. I don't save. But we have a heart that we want to make sure that the Word of God gets to them. So how does loving others affect your evangelism as, as this church, as individuals within it? How does your love affect the way you deal with one another? When one of you is hurting, do you hurt? Do you come alongside? Do you come alongside when it's convenient? When you have the time, when there's just a little leftover, I can do something? How, do, how does it impact the way you help in benevolence and giving and different things like that? Is your priority, uh, if you looked at your, uh, your, if you pulled out your phone and you looked at your calendar and you said, oh, look at where I spend my time. And then you pulled open your, your app on your checking account, I guess. You know, and you look at that and say, where do I spend my money? What do I do with the time? When I have free time and there's nothing required of me, how do I want to spend that time? All those things will tell you what you value and what you love. Where you spend your time, how you spend your resources and talents, and what you get out of it. I mean, we're, we're busy. I don't know about you. I'm busy constantly all the time. And when I get that moment where I can, like, what I can do? I got what? Free time? You know, some of you young parents, you don't even remember what free time is. It's like you're brain damaged at this point because you can't even remember it. 
But you look around and you just go, uh, what do I want to do now? And what you answer next will tell you a lot about the condition of your soul and what you love. It really will. If you find yourself, oh, I got time now, I can check into all the stats of my favorite football player, or I can uh, uh, get online, watch porn, if I could do whatever it is, right? That'll tell you a lot. Who do you love? Who do you love? And Paul, that's what Paul prays. Your love would abound still more and more. Real knowledge in all discernment so that you can approve the things which make a difference in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ and been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Listen, the work of Christ will not be accomplished to its full potential through any church that is not abounding in love. Okay? It will not. Uh, it's, it will be, God will choose to use others to do the work. And that love will cause the body to be unified and strong. It feels like you guys are, I'm, I'm not here, right? So it feels like you guys love each other, you're strong and all that kind of stuff and really care about each other. Although I am concerned about how you sit so far apart from each other. There may be a story behind that, Pastor Mark, right? And there's, um, love will unify the body in the task at hand. There was a guy who visited a mental hospital one time, and he gets there, and there's 100 inmates, and there's only three guards watching him. And the visitor was, like, super surprised. Like, how does that work? I mean, are you afraid that these 100 inmates are going to, like, overpower the three guards? And he just looked at him, and he said, nah, lunatics never unite. That's a lot of churches right there. Full of lunatics who never unite. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, no, this is uh, this is... We're called to abound in love. And so by the time, if you turn forward a little bit to Philippians chapter 2, he, he really starts to hit these attitudes. Uh, look at verse two, verse 1. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection or compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So he starts off and he talks about this source of this fruit of love that's going on that we're talking about. And he says in verse 1, if there's any encouragement, he talks about in Christ, in the Son's encouragement. And again, all these ifs in verse 1 are these first-class conditionals, which are assumed to be true and factual. So since, you could almost say, since there is encouragement in Christ, listen, Christ is our encourager. Are you encouraged by Christ and what he is doing and has done on your behalf? I mean, we ought to be encouraged, number one, by the work that he accomplished for us that redeemed us if we're in Christ, right? Number two, we ought to be just pretty fired up. And I don't know if you even realize this, but right now, he's interceding on your behalf and my behalf right now. Think about that. I love it when people pray, man. I tell you what, I can I can see God move when people have been praying. It's the most amazing thing. When There's been times I've buried little old ladies that everybody goes, well, you know, what do they do or whatever? And I know they're prayer warriors. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, what's God going to do? You know, we, get, we need more prayer warriors like that because we just lost a significant chunk of praying in our church. I mean, Spurgeon, when somebody took a tour of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that somebody was looking at is all oh, this grand building and all the it was quite a you know just a massive place and 
And they said, I want to see your power plant. I want to see how this, how do you operate this? And he took them down in the basement past the furnace in this little room. He opens it up, and there's a bunch of little old ladies in there praying. And he says, that's the power plant. And it is. It really is. Listen, it's great to have each other praying, and we ought to be doing that just like we've already talked about, like Paul did. But on top of that, Christ is praying for Lighthouse Church here. Isn't that great? And he's praying for you individually. He's, he's not praying uh, primarily for your happiness. He's praying for your holiness, which will lead to blessedness. Okay? You need to understand that. His, his main focus is not that you become senior VP of account management at such and such or whatever. His main concern is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's interceding on your behalf. I don't know about you, but to me, that's encouraging to know that, that the son is encouraging in that way, letter A. Letter B, he points to love's consolation. He says, if there's any consolation of love, I mean, the, the idea of consolation, there's this comfort of it. And we are comforted by the love of Christ, as we've already talked about. And the part of the purpose of that comfort that comes to us that way is so that we might comfort others with the love of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He points also, letter C, to the Spirit's fellowship. He says, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, when a person receives Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he receives the Holy Spirit who empowers us to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We have that Spirit of God, who, Him who lives in us, and He binds us to one another and gives them a love that transcends all human uh, bonds. I mean, the separations that we have in humanity right now, people are so separated in so many ways, right? They're fighting that you're left, you're right, you're this, you're that. Uh, the race and ethnicity stuff, um, people will separate over just about anything. But all those separations, ethnicity, socioeconomic situations, natural interest, etc., he transcends those and they're set aside and he gives us something that bonds our hearts together like that family I described in the first hour. Now, if you want to see an example of this, you don't need to turn there. Think about the church at Philippi, who he's writing to here, right? If you go back into Acts and read the story of the church at Philippi, that was a crazy, just all kinds of people in this church, right? I mean, this was not like a, a just a monolithic, everybody's the same age, everybody's the same this or that, everybody lives in the same neighborhood, that kind of stuff. You look at that, and you had a Philippian jailer. And you had a, a pretty wealthy gal named Lydia who came to know the Lord. What did they have in common, right? She's making purple, and he's sitting in there with, you know, rough guys, you know, trying to keep the law, right? What they had in common was Christ, and they were bound together. I think in the Old Testament of David and Jonathan, right? What did they have in common, really? I mean, David was a poor shepherd boy. Jonathan was a king's son. I mean, where are you going? Yeah, I have your experience. It's not that kind of thing, right? David was a nobody from nowhere. Jonathan was royalty. But due to a common love for God, there was a fruit of love toward one another. And that's where they found their basis. They both loved God. My dearest friends in my life are those people who just love God. My best friend for the past, other than my wife, that's the best friend. Right? You guys got to protect me here. No. My best male friend in life, um, I have absolutely nothing in common with. He's from Oregon. 
I'm from Texas. Oregon and Texas, that's like oil and water, isn't it? Uh, he's got an enormous head. I can't even find a hat to fit the guy when I tried to take him to a game one time. Uh, he likes basketball. He loves basketball. I could care less about basketball. I love football. You know, all these kind of normal interests, none of them are the same. I'm a, I like to joke and have fun. And he's like super serious all the time. And doesn't, he, can't, he doesn't have a sense of humor. He was removed at birth. Uh, but he's my dearest friend in the world. Why? Because he loves Jesus Christ with all his heart, man. And there's something about that that just knits our hearts together and strengthens us to follow the Lord better because of the encouragement that's spurring on to love and good deeds that Hebrews 10 talks about. Listen, God binds us together. His Spirit does that, and He creates this fellowship. And then He says there, letter D, the Father's compassion. Since there's affection and compassion, the affection word there, the Greek word for affection is a word that literally translated as bowels, okay? Uh, that's not a real pretty way. I mean, we do it, you know, the hearts. You know, if you got a Valentine's gift, ladies, and you, you, your beau sent you a card, and on the front of it, instead of a nice little red heart, it had bowels, how would you feel about that? I mean, it sends a different message, kind of. You might take it wrongly. But that's if you think about it in reality, when when we're excited or troubled or anxious or in love or all that, you get, what do we say, butterflies in your stomach, that kind of thing. The, really, the center of your emotions is kind of right in, in this part, not here. I mean, some, yeah, your heart can change beat or do something like that, I suppose. But uh, this is where it comes from. And he says, if there's this kind of, it's metaphorical of the emotions. And he's describing here this deep personal longing for of those who are dearly loved by others. In this case, the Father has loved us in such a way, and he's given us his love to love others. And he talks about compassion, mercy. We should be merciful people. And all those things put together, and we won't spend any more time on that, uh, all these things start to form this unified harmony uh, activity that the church, God's people, are bound together by this. All men will know you're my disciples if you love one another, and that shows that. Now, what you see in there is this Trinitarian work of God in the, every believer's life. You see the Father, you see the Son, you see the Spirit. And, and now, beginning in verse 2, he gives us uh, the symptoms or the marks of unified love. That's point number two on your outline. These are these internal transformative attitudes that are instilled in us by God that changes our desires from the inside out. Now, this is so important because we can all have tendency towards rule-keeping, right? How many of you are list-keepers? Anybody here just love a good list? You like to, you right? I'm that way. I love a list, man. I got lists on my lists. If I do something and it wasn't on my list, I'll write it down just so I can scratch it off. feels so good. I know. Pray for me. If you love me, pray for me. Now, to, the, to our type, if we're not careful, just tell me what to do. I'll do it, right? I'll just kind of grip my teeth and do it. But what we're looking for here is something that is God-driven, transformative from the inside out. And these attitudes are going to play into what we talk about tomorrow, which is how that plays out in actual practice of life. So these things are the, the underlayments that God does. And the first one that you see here, uh, letter a under point number two is harmony. God's people living in harmony is an incredibly 
powerful thing. By the way, harmony does not mean we're all the same. Please understand that. This is not cookie cutter stuff here, okay? <laughs> Everybody dresses the same. Everybody talks the same. Oh, that's not what it's talking about here. I think there's some guys in the church. Every now and then I see more guys starting to cut their hair real short. And I'm like, what's the deal, dudes? You know, you got hair. You should grow it out and enjoy it. They're like, don't be cookie cutters. We're not all doing the same thing here, right? Uh, We need to understand that there is a difference between unity and uniformity, right? I mean, uh, take, for example, a choir. You know, even this group that was up here singing, you had harmony going on, as they sang. You hear it? It's so beautiful, right? To hear the voices interacting and things like that. I mean, uh, a choir or a group like that, you're singing the same song. So there's this unity that's going on there, but each person singing has a little bit different part they are singing on it. That's the not uniformity. Uh, That's why harmony is kind of a good way to describe how we complement each other. We have these different personalities, and certainly we have different giftedness and different roles to play, but in Christ, listen up, we all have the same desires, the same hopes, and we should all have the same goals. That's how Paul really describes it there. If you look down uh, to verse 2, it's, it's kind of like we're all being tuned to the same tuning fork, right? I mean, A.W. Tozer in his little book, The Pursuit of God, uh, wrote that if you took 100 concert pianos and you tuned them, the first one, then you tuned the second one to the first one, and the third one to the second one, and the fourth one to the third one, and went all the way to 100 like that. At the end, when they all start to play, you've got this discord, because there's just a little bit of bend on each one of them, right? But he goes on to talk about if you tuned each piano to the exact same tuning fork, you know, that kind of thing, you would have unity and harmony. That's what Paul's describing as you get to verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So uh, you see letter I there, it's one mind, we're the same mind, like-mindedness. To think of the same thing is literally what it's saying there. <laughs> we have agreement in our thinking. Now this is why, and some people say, well, you know, that church believes this and this church believes that, and that's not what the Bible teaches can't we just all get along, you know, kind of Rodney King style, right? And it's like, no. We have to have unity and truth. Go read Ephesians if you don't quite understand that. You have to have the truth. We have to be one mind, like-minded, one single-mindedness. And the truth is not negotiable, folks. It's not like, you know, a guy comes in, he's like a Jehovah's Witness or loves Buddha or something like that. He comes in here, he's like, uh, you know, I'm going to be a part of the church. He's a great musician. Let's put him in the band. You know, no. No, he needs no Christ to be a part of the fellowship of the church. And he needs to understand the biblical truths that the Word of God teaches, at least in the salvific sense, and they'll grow in the rest like the rest of us are still doing. So and there needs to be this unity of mind, one mind, same mind. There are also, what does this show? The second thing, one love. He says you're maintaining the same love. We've talked about that already, so I won't spend any time there. But there is a love for God where you're desiring to spend time with Him in prayer. You're hungering for time in the Word. You're yearning to see people come to Christ. And there's love for others, which uh, plays out in this patience, kindness, concern, humility, gentleness, objectivity, 
you know, fairness, honesty, forgiveness, sincerity that you see in 1 Corinthians 13. So we have one mind and one love. We also have one spirit. Look at that. It says united in spirit. That's one Greek word there, and it says this literally, one sold. One sold. We're to be soul brothers. We're to have the same heartbeat. Kind of like David and Jonathan, we were talking about earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. It talks about there how their souls were knit together. That idea. And then lastly, number four, we have one purpose. We're intent on one purpose. That naturally flows out of the rest. When we have one mind, we're doctrinally pure. When we have that mutual love and our souls are knit together, that will drive our purpose. And then we should be marked by this harmony that flows from the inside out. Okay, so this is not something you're saying, we need to be harmonious, so X has a problem with Y, and so I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm, I'm, I need to get some things figured out here. I need to get my mind right doctrinally. I need to get my heart right and love. I need to have my soul right and all these kind of things. Then out of that, you know how to respond. Sometimes the right thing to do is love covers a multitude of sins, right? And sometimes the thing is we need to talk about this and get this fixed, right? There's some things that need to be corrected. So that's genuine harmony, right? And that's what the call is here. That's the first attitude. The next inward attitude that we see, which is a fruit of biblical love, is humility. Look at verse 3. He says, do nothing. Hold on here. How many of you are Greek scholars? Anybody? Mark, who else? Anybody? Good. Well, let me help you out. What do you think the word nothing means? The Greek word for nothing, this really good, you're going to enjoy this, means nothing. That's what it means, all right? How much are we supposed to do from selfishness or empty conceit? Nothing. Not a thing. Not one thing. Well, what about no? Well, how about nah? What about the nah? Stop there, right? It can't. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What's selfishness? I don't have to tell you what selfishness is. You know it as good as I do because you're perfect at it, just like I am, right? We're really good at selfishness. Selfishness is I'm first. It's me. What about what I want? What about the style of music I want? What about the, whatever it is, what about my ministry, not your ministry, all this kind of stuff? Do nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What's empty conceit? Uh, old King James said vainglory, and that's what it is. It's kind of this empty, false glory. You want glory for something, you don't deserve glory for anything, neither do I, right? God deserves glory. Be seeking after your own false glory. The old Southern Baptist preacher Jerry Vines called these the twins of turmoil, selfishness and empty conceit. It's this ambition, this faction, party spirit stuff. People have an agenda. They want to advance their agenda at all costs, even by flattery or deceit or sinful ways like that, false accusations, any tactic that may seem advantageous. Listen, 3 John 9 talks about a cat there that's named Diostrophes. That's him. You don't want to be a Diostrophes. There's little that's more damaging to a church than the development of factions, cliques, or special groups. This does not mean you don't have friends. It does not mean people that you're closer to and not closer to. It doesn't mean that, of course. But your friendships spur you on to love more than hinder from showing love. I remember when we were in our church in Kansas and 
the elders and my and I myself this we were probably the closest of friends because I mean we had a lot of things a lot of battles we had to fight in the early years of that and to see some changes to make the church more biblical and so because of that you're kind of like comrades in war almost in a way and so you like being with each other and you it's so nice to be around people who understand what you're thinking and get certain theological things and stuff like that but I started to notice on Sunday mornings, I'd find all our, the elders, we'd all be talking to each other and hanging out while everybody else was doing their thing, right? I'm like, no, guys, we see each other all the time. We get together plenty of times. We need to be out getting to know everybody else and spending our time loving on them, too. Even though it's more comfortable to love those who love you first, right? So there's this idea that we have that's more, you know, centered around the world's philosophies than our own, and we need to have that turned upside down. So he has this negative command, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness inhibits the work of a church. Don't be selfish. MacArthur writes, no church, even the most doctrinally sound and spiritually mature, is immune from the threat of this sin, and nothing can more quickly divide and weaken a church Selfish ambition is often the, often clothed in pious rhetoric by those who are convinced of their own superior abilities in promoting the cause of Christ. Don't be selfish. Don't be full of empty conceit. And again, empty conceit is just this idea, you know, you think you're something else. You're all that in a bag of chips, right? You just think, man, I'm, I'm so... Nobody can play the music like I play the music. Nobody can preach like I can preach. Nobody can... Do the nursery like I do the nursery. Do you see how good-looking I am? I mean, I know all of you guys are probably very jealous at this point. That's vainglory, right? What do you have that wasn't given to you, Paul says? What do you have? Seriously. Are you good at something? I mean, God gives people in all kinds of ways, but listen, most of you in here are good at something. Maybe a few aren't, but most of you are, Right? And are you prideful about that? Somebody else can't do it quite as well? That's vainglory. Empty conceit. Stealing the glory. You didn't You didn't make you, you smart, man. You can program or do whatever it is you do. That I'm going, how do I turn on my iPhone? You know, and you're like, ding, 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 you, know, you got it all figured out. And I'm like, it's like, uh, man, hey, you might look and say, well, that guy is really dumb. He doesn't even know how to turn on his iPhone. Well, the only reason you could learn that in your case was because God allowed you to be able to learn that. Give glory to God. Don't steal the glory. Empty glory. That's what that is. People do it with their looks. People do it with their talents. People do it with their money. People do it with all kinds of things. It's vain, okay? So the negative command is don't do it. Okay, simple as that. Do nothing. The positive command he follows with there in verse 3, he says, but, and when you see the word but in Scripture, it's a great word. You can see some. It's like the hinge of a door. Things are about to change. But, and here's the positive command, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. Did it say that? Did I read that right? I don't know. How easy is that coming for you? They're more important than me. Peter talks of the humility we should have in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. He tells us, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. And here's why. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in opposition to God. 
the all-powerful. He spoke, and it was. Think about that for a second. I mean, I could work my whole life, and I might be able to make something that somebody might buy, right, physically. You know, craft and work. He goes, let there be, boom. And we're here we are hundreds and thousands of years later, and we're getting we're going, uh, wait, we just found some more stars out here with the uh, Schmeckelstein telescope that went into outer wherever, you know? And it's like, yeah, God's like, yeah, I made that all in one day. No big deal. Just spoke it. And we're like, I don't want that opposed to me. He's all powerful. He's all wise. He knows my thoughts before I think him. I want him on my side, right? God's opposed to the proud. So I learned from that. I don't really want to be proud. And then the other side of it's really precious as well because I need a lot of grace, right? He gives grace to who? The humble. Nobody wants to be opposed by God and everybody wants a little grace, don't they? So reject pride, embrace humility. Now this idea of humility is not, you know, kind of the old... Charles Dickens, Uriah Heap kind of thing, where I'm the most humblest man, you know, that kind of thing. We're walking around with your head down or whatever. Uh, humility is not thinking little of yourself. Humility is not thinking about yourself at all. Okay? Now, the people reading this, Philippi, that was some weird teaching to them because humility was kind of like, huh, humility is kind of like a put-down. And pride was something kind of cool. It's very similar to our society, wouldn't you say? We have this intense fixation on self in our society. Um, even in churches, sadly, sometimes. And it, that's completely out of step with the teaching of the Bible. Uh, we live in a society that says, hey, you need to look out for number one. The Bible says... Look out for others. We live in a world that says, I can do anything I set my mind to. I'm something special. The Bible teaches that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He gets the glory. The world says, you know, you need higher self-esteem. The Bible says you need higher God-esteem. You don't need to think better of yourself. That's the problem, right? We think way too high of ourselves. We need to think higher of God. The world says it's me first, and the Bible teaches that it's God first, other second, and me last. That's true love, by the way. Dwight Pentecost said it well when he wrote this. Listen to his words. Love makes every man a servant not only of Jesus Christ, but the whole family of God. It is love that makes a housewife and a mother do the seemingly menial tasks that fall to her day after day. It's love that makes her desire to serve her husband and her children. Love transforms a husband and makes him a servant of his wife and his family, in which he seeks their good above his own good, their welfare above his own pleasure. That's good. Listen, we're to regard others as more important than ourselves. That idea of regard is mean I'm going to give out. 
come to a thoughtful, carefully thought-out conclusion that they are more important than me. It doesn't mean I'm going to pretend others are more important. It means that I actually believe others are more important that's hard and it's unnatural so if you're gonna do that it's gonna be supernatural empowered by the holy spirit of god uh, perhaps the best way i think from for my life the best way for me to to help me do this and i certainly have not arrived is to consider my own sinfulness my what god what god saved me from you know what i mean uh, that deters boastful self-exaltation a lot of the time. Listen, you need to understand that, and I know people struggle with this, right? Uh, struggle with assurance issues and some of those kind of things, but as you mature in the Christian faith, you grow in the understanding of the holiness of God and His majesty. And as you do that, as you see just how holy, you begin to understand the greatness and holiness of God better, uh, that increasingly abolishes your own pride and increases your humility, or should. Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul, man, that's, if you're an apostle with capital A, I'm an apostle with capital A. I might get that on my business card, you know what I mean? How did he respond? throughout his life and sanctification. It's interesting to look at the Apostle Paul's writing and the instances where he talks about himself. And he looks at himself, and if you align all of his writings chronologically, the years they were written, what you'll find is a very interesting trend that's very different than from, say, self-esteem or something like that, or even what a lot of churches and Christians believe will happen. In the first half, of A.D. 55, when Paul writes his first letter to the church at Corinth, listen to how he describes himself. He says, I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle. Now, is that humility? Yeah, I mean, but it's also you're the least of, you know, they're 12, 13, you know, these guys, right? That's pretty good. That's a pretty good class you're in there. I don't, I'm not saying he's saying it pridefully, Okay. But that's the way he described himself. It was a humble statement. He knows he was the least to that, least to that group. And he was making that point. Now, if you go just a few years later into Ephesians, when he writes to Ephesus, he calls himself there, not the least of the apostles, he calls himself the least of the saints. You see what's happening there? Something's changing as he gets more mature, more sanctified. He starts to see just how undeserving and how great the work of God is. Two years after that, in 1 Timothy 1, listen, and this is the last time he describes himself, he describes himself this way. He says, not I'm the least of the apostles, not I'm the least of the saints, but he describes himself as the foremost of sinners. If you're ranking sinners, I'm the worst there ever was. And you might be tempted, if you're highly psychological, like most of our society is to think, you know, Paul, you need a good Christian counselor or something who'll help you think better of yourself. But what's happening there is his God esteem is rising and that his self esteem is not found. He's not finding his value and boasting and all that in himself. 
but it's in God, and he understands that I have been redeemed by the greatest one, God himself, God Almighty. He saved me, and you don't know how bad of a wretch I was. I think of John Newton. John Newton, you know John Newton, right? He wrote Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And Chris Tomlin changed it. You know, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's the most sung song in history. John Newton was a slave trade. John Newton was a pagan extraordinaire. John Newton looked at himself and he, he realized, hey, he even became a slave at one point. He was a drunk. He was everything you could do wrong. John Newton was about that, and then God redeemed him. You think that informed when he wrote down, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, to save a wretch like me. <laughs> I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I love John Newton. I mean, he's got a whole book of hymns. That's just one, right? It's called the Oni Hymns. It's a great devotional book. He pastored a little church called Oni. That's where he gets hands, O-L-N-E-Y. And uh, he pastored there, and most of his congregation was illiterate. It's a very little town. Kim and I have been there. It's a beautiful, quaint, British place, very small. And uh, most, of his, most of his parishioners were illiterate. So he's like, how do I minister? Now, this is love. I want you to see the love here. He says, I'm going to write hymns so they can, with music, memorize theological truth. And he'd write hymns on pieces, passages or themes and all kinds of those three books he put together that are all in this little hymns. I bought me a little copy in this little museum there. Uh, and it's just blessed my heart many times old. And part of what he was doing was ministering to people, but he was also ministering to his back, the neighbor behind his fence. He was a fellow by the name of William Cooper. He's written hymns that we still sing today. And William Cooper had a lot of struggles himself. But he was, he was English, England's uh, foremost poet. And so he said, I can get him helping me with this and he'll minister to his soul. That's a love, isn't it? I, I encourage you to read those because it really does show you uh, the greatness of, of love played out. Because for a man who could say, you know what? They can't read. Let them come to me and I'll be the dispenser of knowledge. Information is power, right? But he said, I want them to know. I want Christ to be lifted high. You know, on this topic of love, there's a uh, one of the hymns in there. It's probably one of my favorites. Um, is all this issue of love, where he's looking at himself as he's writing these hymns, and he's just going looking at the topic we're looking at, basically. And he's thinking, do I love God? You know, I mean, have you felt a little bit like that at times while we've been kind of going through this? I'm supposed to love people like that? Do I even love God? And he ponders that. And he's, he's teaching his congregation from uh, uh, Peter after the denial. And Jesus get, comes to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Three times, feed my sheep, that kind of thing. And so he picks up pen and he writes this. I want to read it to you. I know it's a little long. Bear with me. I'm not going to say it to you. You'll be very grateful for that. Listen, this is John Newton, pastor, theologian. And he struggles like that too. 
Tis a point I long to know. Oft it causes anxious thought. Do I love the Lord or no? Am I his or am I not? If I love, why am I so? Why do I do the things I do, right? Got like Paul. Why this dull and lifeless frame? Surely they cannot be worse who've never heard his name. Could my heart so hard remain? Prayer a task and burden prove. Every trifle give me pain. If I knew the Savior's love, would I be like that? He says, when I turn my eyes within, all is dark and vain and wild, filled with unbelief and sin. Can I deem myself a child? If I pray or I hear or I read, sin is mixed with all I do. You that love the Lord indeed, tell me, is it thus with you? And yet, and here's the John Newton version of the word but, and yet, I mourn my stubborn will, find my sin a grief and thrall. Would I grieve for what I feel if I did not love the Lord at all? Could I joy his saints to me? See the love? Could the ways I once abhorred find at times God's promise sweet if I didn't love the Lord? <laughs> so, Lord, decide my doubtful case. You who are your people's son, shine upon your work of grace if indeed it is begun. Let me love you more and more, if I love at all, I pray. And if I have not loved before, help me to begin today. You hear the heart of the man? You see, we're mixed with sin and, and grace while we're here, right? When our flesh fights the spirit and uh, we fail. We do. We don't love like we're supposed to love all the time. We're selfish sometimes. And we won't arrive at full, complete uh, perfection in any of these issues, right? Until when? Glorification. The day you die, you'll, that will have done it poorly, probably at some point near that day. But the grace of God abounds. That's Romans 5, right? Where sin abounds, grace abounds. Now, does that mean... I want to sin so that grace abounds, Paul asked. And Paul's like, I can say no in a couple of ways. I could say ooh, I could say may, I could say ooh may, or I could say meganata. And meganata is the strongest negative, and that's the one he uses there. He says this, he says, may it never, it's like a prayer, Lord, please may it never be that I do that. Listen, uh, as you come out of this, you're not going to do this perfectly, and you understand that, I hope. But, uh, you will, in the progress of sanctification, see it enacted more and more in your life if you focus one mind, one love, one spirit, one purpose, one soul, putting aside selfishness, laying aside empty conceit, and embracing a love for others where you regard them as more important than yourself. That's the attitude, right? Harmony. And humility. And then the last one's helpfulness. Okay. Letter C on your outline. Again, a negative command and a positive command. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, which, by the way, is what everything in the world encourages you to do. Look out for your own interests. 
But what's the positive account? That's the put off. Put off, looking for your own interest. Put on what? Look out for the interest also of others at the end of verse 4. And that, my friends, is the way Jesus Christ was, wasn't he? I mean, think about Jesus' ministry as you read the Gospels. Do you think that night that Nicodemus shows up, he might have been a little tired, but he took the time. We know he was tired when he sat down by the well and the Samaritan woman came up, but he cared and he engaged her in a conversation and showed her the way. There are times we're tired. There are times we feel like, I don't think I can take on one more thing. And there may be times, like Jesus, where you need to go out to a quiet place and be alone and pray and for spiritual renewal, right? But there's probably a good chance, more likely for us, that we need to analyze our lives and say, why am I so worn out? What have I filled my life with that is pushing out the things that God has called me to do? We all have them. I'm working 90 hours this week. Why are you working that? Well, if I work, I get the partnership or something like that, right? I know that's the main thing as of a sovereign God. Work as unto the Lord, but you have other responsibilities too. Do it well. If, if your job is precluding you from carrying out what he's expressly told you to do, you probably need to deal with it and get another job, right? Well, I can't make the money I make. Well, trust the Lord's. Well, but, you know, it's expensive. We're in San Jose. It's one of the most expensive places on earth. I agree. And God's the most powerful God on earth, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and you can trust him. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's the scriptures. You try to do everything in your power to do it the way that... It, you know, it works out. It's not like, you know, you may be tempted to hear something like that, and you go, well, I'm just going to quit my job and let go let God. Well, that's not his plan either. If a man doesn't work, he ought not eat. Right? Consider the ant. There are many important things. Work as unto the Lord. Those are all, work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. But sometimes it becomes an idol, just like every other good thing that the Lord gives us, including our own lives, where we become the idol and we love ourselves more than we love him and love others. Renew your mind, brethren, as I try to keep renewing mine. Set aside that, humili- that pride for the purpose of humility. Live in harmony. Set aside your preferences for the sake of others. And seek to help and come alongside others. Think of their interests as as big as your interests. And that, those are the inward attitudes that will lead to the outward fruit that we get really excited about seeing in a church because that's when you get to see what's going on as it starts to play out, okay? And that's what we'll talk about, Lord willing, tomorrow morning. Or maybe we'll be in heaven. Wouldn't that be cool? And you rapture, boop, we're out of here. That'd be all right as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for uh, the way that you... Uh, show us your love in so many ways. And one of the ways that you show us your love is by instructing us with your perfect truth. Lord, may we be found faithful. These words do go against everything that we kind of hold dear in our flesh. But Father, you empower us to live in a way that brings glory to your name. So 
Lord, our desire, whether at home or away, is to be pleasing to you. Our chief goal, our chief ambition is to bring glory to your name. May that be our heartbeat each and every minute and hour of the day. In Christ's name, all God's people said, amen.